Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The Extreme Boundaries of the Sayable, featuring Kate Cole-Adams, Nikki Gamel, and Kate Granville in conversation with Ashley Hay, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello everyone and welcome not only to this session of the Byron Writers Festival but indeed to the entire festival. This conversation is one of the first cabs off the rank um, and we're very delighted that so many of you are here with us this morning. My name's Ashley Hay. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this conversation between three wonderful writers about three very different and very breathtaking books. Uh, we have Kate Cole-Adams with Anesthesia, who is in the middle, um, Nikki Gemmel with After, who is here, and Kate Grenville on the end with The Case Against Fragrance. And we are out at the extreme boundaries of the sayable, as the title of this session says. And I'm very excited not only to be exploring some of the kinds of things that each of our writers found out there, but also some of the intersections and conjunctions between these very different books. Uh, we're going to be talking about consciousness and unconsciousness. We're going to be talking about elective death. We're going to be talking about the sensory assaults that we make on ourselves and each other and the world. And the spaces and the overlaps that these things create um, is, is very interesting. I think there'll be some very beautiful combinations of thinking and feeling and knowing, which is, you know, what you want out of your books when you think about it. These books are very ethical, they're very moral, they're very emotional and they're very scientific, which I think also makes them a nice combination of stuff. Um, they traverse an amazing range of things that we know and things that we don't know and the big gaps that sometimes exist in how we experience different parts of life and death and the strange stuff in between. Now, you'll notice that there's another chair on the stage and that is the pen empty chair and I'm very um, delighted to be able to acknowledge Penn. Penn was founded in 1921 to act as a powerful voice on behalf of writers harassed, imprisoned and sometimes killed for their views. And an empty chair on stage is a symbol adopted by Penn International to represent the writers who can't be with us today because they've been imprisoned for their writing. And part of the function of Penn, I think, has always been to keep telling the stories that writers themselves can no longer tell. And I'd like to start by talking a little bit about this predisposition that we have as humans, let alone as writers, for storytelling. We are, by definition, narrative-making animals. It's one of the things that marks us out from other species. And perhaps we depend more on this sort of storytelling part of ourselves than usual when we are trying to make sense of that stuff that's kind of out on the edge of our everyday experience. In three different ways, I think that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to start with you, Nikki. Welcome to Byron this year. Thank you. It's so great to be here. <laughs> um, you will all know Nikki from her very rich suite of 13 novels, including the most famous and best-selling Bride Strip Bear. She also has children's fiction, which she writes as NJ Gemmell, and of course her wonderful weekly column in the Weekend Australian magazine. And we are here to talk this morning about her new and very fast and very powerful book, After. Um, it felt to me like a kind of urgent frontline report 
and that is kind of what it is. An urgent frontline report from an unexpected world. It opens with Nikki having to go to identify the, um, the body of her mother, Elaine, who has been found dead in her apartment after taking her own life. And you describe it, Nikki, as death by choice. Now, writers are known for this, <laughs> living with this urge to narrative. Maybe we do it a bit more than most people. But this story, Elaine's story, must have been one of the most confronting for you to have to try to make sense of. And I wanted to start by asking you if you can tell us a little bit about where we are with After and about your journey from the living of the story to the writing of it. Have you always used storytelling as a way of understanding things that are going on for you? Yeah. And apologies, I have to put my glasses on because I'm as blind as a bat <laughs> and I love to see you all, <laughs> see your faces. Um, Yes, I write to understand. I always write to ask questions and to answer them if possible, perhaps to not answer them, but to go on a journey with that. Almost two years ago, two police officers appeared on my doorstep with those faces that you know something awful has happened. It was a beautiful Friday morning, just like this one. I looked at them and I went, the children. And they went, no, 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 it's not the children. I went, my husband. They went, no, 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 it's not your husband, it's your mother. And as soon as they said that, I knew what she'd done possibly. I needed to know why she had done that. And as these beautiful, very tender police officers, you never really associate the word tenderness with police officers, were with me over several hours. I was crouched in the fetal position in my kitchen and they were there on the floor with me, one of them with their hand on my back. But I suddenly realised they were asking me questions and one of them had started to take out his notebook and was writing down what I was saying. And from that moment, I realised that in terms of my mother's sudden unexpected death, I could possibly be under investigation here. And it was the novelist's brain in me ticking over as much as anything. It was like, this is not a murder mystery, but a dead body mystery. And I'm in a race with these police officers to find out what on earth had gone on here. So I was taken down to the police station. I had to give a statement. You know, they asked me, how do you spell euthanasia? They had never heard of Dr. Philip Nitschke, which made me realise, oh, I was quite a few decades older than them. <laughs> um, but it began a process, a journey of understanding. And as I have always done throughout 20, 25 years of writing, I write to understand, I write to give me strength and solace to get me through. Mm. And writing was my way of getting through this terrible mess of a mystery that involved my mother. Thank you. I, I have the sense that your book is going to be um, incredibly important to a lot of people for helping them to frame things they've never quite known how to ask or how to think about before. It's got this um, very great power for just looking at an incredibly complicated thing head on. Um. Yes, I, I, think, I think my book, as much as anything, is a plea to listen. Mm. I've been doing a, a few forums involving people very interested in death by choice. My mother basically, 
she had chronic pain. She was very involved with Philip Nitschke's Exit International organisation. She imported Nembatol from Mexico and his Peaceful Pills handbook. She basically did it by the book. Mm. And I was interested in that whole almost cult-like process. She found a lot of solace mm. from that world. And what I've found as I've been talking to various people, elderly people will often stand up at the end and say, no one is listening to us. Mm. So in a way... I didn't listen well enough to my mother. I would get too emotional when she'd talk about exit and her desire for euthanasia. I'd put my hands over my ears and I'd go, Mummy, Mummy, don't you want to see the children grow up? I, it was emotional manipulation in mm. a way on my part that cut off the conversation, made it too hard for her to have the conversation. I would do everything differently now. Mm. So my book, in a way, is a plea for opening up this conversation, normalising this conversation, giving older people amongst us respect for their wishes and what they want to do. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I would now like to welcome Kate Grenville down the end there. You all know Kate Grenville, I am sure, the author of wonderful novels including The Secret River, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker and the Idea of Perfection, which won the Orange Prize. Um, two years ago, Kay performed what I think is a sort of exquisite act of literary resurrection for her own mother's world, which was published as One Life. And it was while she was publicising this book that she realised she was being beset and assaulted by fragrance. And that gives us her new book, The Case Against Fragrance, which is part investigation, part manifesto about the science and the extraordinary unknowns of this grossly smelly world <laughs> in which we live. Um, it turns out that the world of fragrance is very secretive, very complicated and potentially a very dangerous industry. And it, it worked for me not only as sort of explaining all of that but on this amazing kind of metaphorical level as well. I was going to say that the book was breathtaking but then... <laughs> <laughs> in the context of all the breaths of Kate's that she has been denied, it might not be the best phrase. Um, and I wanted to start, Kate, by talking about the scene at the beginning of the book, which I loved, where you are, um, you are in a particularly aromatic hotel and you sneak out to buy duct tape to literally seal yourself into your room so that that kind of potpourri waft can't come in under the doorway and you describe yourself as admiring your handiwork sealed up like a pharaoh, making a mental note that she always needed to travel with tape after this, but also having the nasty feeling that you might just have crossed one of life's little boundaries, which I loved. I wanted to start by asking you the steps that you took from realising this intimate relationship you were going to have with duct tape from there on in <laughs> to realising that this was a story that you needed to unravel and, and how you kind of proceeded from there. Uh, look, reluctantly is the short answer. I thought I don't want to have to write a book about it. Look, the, the primary impulse was my own curiosity about what happened to me when I was exposed to fragrance, which is that I get a pounding headache and a kind of terrible brain fog and I generally just feel like uh, closing myself in a room under the, under the bedclothes. So the question is, was I in fact crazy? Had I crossed that invisible line into madness? Or was there some science behind this? So that was the impulse 
And of course, these days, science is at our fingertips on Google, um, as well as a lot of um, <laughs> non-science. Um, but once I had discovered, I mean, I read the stuff with astonishment. I mean, my first astonishment is that I thought I must be the only person in the universe to get sick from fragrance. In fact, it's one person in three. Now, that amazed me. I mean, that means probably a third of this audience has uh, either gets a headache or asthma or skin things or starts wanting to throw up. Um, the other thing is, of course, like most of us, I always thought fragrance was made from flowers. What kind of crazy person would, be alert, <laughs> would get a headache from flowers? No, on the contrary. Uh, these days, it used to be made from flowers. These days, no matter which, whether you're spending a lot of money on something in a fancy bottle or buying, buying some toilet cleaner, it's likely to be fragranced with synthetic fragrance chemicals. So, oh, and the third absolute astonishment is that in this nanny state of ours, fragrance is entirely unregulated by governments. This is a self-regulated industry to the point where you don't even have to read on the label what's in it. Whereas, you know, you buy a pint of milk and it says, warning, contains milk. <laughs> so it was, it was when I discovered all these kind of astonishing things, I thought, well, actually, and if it's one in three of us, maybe, maybe we should be, as you said, starting a conversation about this slightly uh, unknown subject. Mind you, when I floated the idea past my publisher, there was this long silence <laughs> on the end of the phone. Finally, he said, Kate, <coughs> for you to be writing a book about fragrance would be like Mozart giving up symphonies and taking up greyhound training. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting addendum to that is that at a speech like this in, in Adelaide, a woman came up to me in the signing line afterwards and said, actually, my husband's written a book about greyhound training. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a reluctant starter with this storytelling, but having told the story, I'm very glad I did. Did you set out thinking it might be a book or did you just set out for some answers and then did it sort of unfold beyond yeah. you? Look, I am, uh, as my publisher also said, uh, you've discovered your inner nerd <laughs> with this book. And that is also true. I love facts. Long ago I wrote a book about um, a very unpleasant man whose kind of hobby is collecting facts. And actually there's a bit of me in Albion Singer. I love to know how the world works. It may, may not be a coincidence that my daughter's a scientist. <laughs> uh, you know, that thing of, okay, this is happening. Let's work out why. Let's keep unpicking why. Mm. I want to come back to the sort of science and fact thing later on, but I would like now to welcome our third writer, Kate Cole-Adams, um, and your extraordinary narrative, Anesthesia, The Gift of Oblivion and the Mystery of Consciousness. This is one of the most wonderful and challenging books that I've read for ages and the kind of book that I know I will go back to again and again. It contained multitudes for me, not just on the sort of subject that Kate's writing about, but just asking us to think about how we live, how we think, how things work, how things tick. Um, I know that I'll, I'll kind of come back to it again and again. Now, you joke in your biog, you're a, you're a journalist and you published a novel... Um, ten years ago, I think, and you joke about the speed of your writing <laughs> in your little biog line. There are references in Anesthesia itself to how long it, it, it sort of took to come into itself. So I wanted to start by asking you to tell us the story about where this book sprang from and how you set off on that journey to working out what it was going to be in the end. 
Thanks, Ash. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, I, I think what I say on the bottom of my, my bio is, is I, I write very slowly, mm. which um, is, is kind of embarrassing for a journalist, but it's, it's true. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this question because, it, you know, when people ask me where did, where did this start, I don't, my background's not in science or medicine. Um, my background is like anti-maths because I, I failed it. Uh, but I, about, well, in 1999 it was, uh, I, I met a woman who'd at, at a dinner party who uh, told us all over dessert about the birth of her, her child and, and waking up during the anaesthetic to find herself paralysed but still completely able to feel everything that was going on. And uh, it was an extraordinary story and, and clearly a kind of dinner party stopper. Uh, there was kind of like this terrible silence and no one ate anything after that. It was just like, my God. But... Um, and, and her story was extraordinary on a couple of levels. One, because of what she, what had happened to her, which was just mind-blowing. And, and to me, it was so... Uh, it was so sort of gothic, and, and it just kind of hit so many basic human terrors. Uh, you know, uh, paralysis, silencing, burial. I mean, all of those sorts of things. And so I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. But the other thing that she also went on to talk about in that conversation was actually halfway through, at the point where she really did feel that she was going to die, uh, making a, a decision about how she was actually going to cope with the pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and she decided that rather than die, she was going to actually try something that uh, a yoga teacher friend of hers had suggested, uh, not for this particular situation, because she hadn't <laughs> anticipated it, but uh, her friend had said, look, uh, if you're ever in pain, the thing to do is not to waste your energy trying to get away from the pain, but to move into the pain. And at that point, uh, this woman, whose name was Rachel Ben Mayer, and she's an extraordinary woman, uh, she said, okay, so I started trying to burrow into the pain. Um, and she, she did, she burrowed. And I said, oh, like hopefully, oh, so did the pain lessen as you burrowed? And she just looked at me and she laughed. And it wasn't a humorous laugh. But she talked about burrowing on and then kind of suddenly arriving in this completely other realm of consciousness where other things happened. Mm. And so to me, it was a story partly about a failure of an anaesthetics. Like, what, how can that even happen? But also the extraordinary places our minds can go. And it started making me think a lot about consciousness. Um, and the only other thing I'm just going to add, add to that in terms of where this story came from was that's my kind of instant, like, conscious uh, response to that story. But when I was thinking about it just yesterday, I thought, I, I don't know why it took me so long, but I thought, yeah, but, you know, that's really weird because I'd been preoccupied with this sort of area for much longer because I'd, um, I'd, I'd written feature stories on uh, uh, coma and locked-in syndrome. Again, that experience of being paralysed mm. but, um, but awake. And I'd also written about... Uh, uh, sort of somatizing, so sort of uh, expressing psychological um, conflicts through uh, physical symptoms, including paralysis. So, in fact, I thought, gee, I, the, the whole paralysis thing uh, obviously scares the shit out of me. Uh, you know. <laughs> Always a very good incentive to start writing about Absolutely. what scares the shit out of you, yeah. I think. Um, and one of the most astonishing things about anaesthesia the stuff as opposed to the book, is how little we know about what it does um, or why. It's also one of the most astonishing things about 
that big smelly world of fragrance too, like just how little we know about what we're slathering on ourselves and it's sort of one of the most astonishing things I think about our very standard relationship to death. We kind of don't want to know about it. We want to keep it far away from us despite the fact that it's, you know, that inevitability out there along with taxes. And I wanted to ask you all now about the, the sort of interface between your topics and the real world. What confronted you about them? What perplexed you about them? What you thought you knew about them until you sort of started out on the work. So Kate Cole Adams, I'm going to start with you first of all if I can. All right, well I mean to be honest I, I knew absolutely nothing so... Uh, Which I, is I, probably true of most of us about anesthetic. We well, think we go in, someone puts us under, something yeah, happens to us, yeah. we come out, mm. everything's I mean, rosy. That's right. One of the things that did astonish me was to find that no one, as far as I can find out, has actually written a, a sort of... Um, uh, you know, a general readership book on anaesthesia. There, there's lots and lots of books by anaesthetists for anaesthetists. There's books by anaesthetists for patients. But actually, a book that says, "Hang on, what is this thing? This is really strange. This mm. this is this extraordinary thing that we do. We we basically make this fabulous deal because at least it's there to be made. But where we hand over the most precious part of ourselves, we hand over our consciousness." to a doctor in order to enable them to, to cut us open and mm. rearrange us mm. uh, and then to uh, restore us to ourselves. But this, to me, it seemed that there's this kind of curious blankness uh, I about actually asking w what happens. And mm. I've sort of wondered partly whether it's just because it scares people, but I also think it's, it's partly the nature of the beast, I mean, anaesthesia takes away our consciousness. Uh, it also takes away our memory. Uh, and I kind of feel like it's almost, it happens, and we sort of like, what was that? Mm. Oh, oh, here I am again. We think about our surgeons. We think about what they're going to do. But we don't actually think about what we're going the to person do. who's going to put us in what is basically a pharmacological coma mm. and take us part of the way towards death and then, beautifully, bring us back. Mm. I can't remember the rest of your no, question. No, that's... Thank you. <laughs> Kate Grenville, apart from presuming that fragrance came from flowers, <laughs> were there other... Were you someone who'd thought a lot about fragrance before this book? Were there a... Or did you sort of know how little you didn't know, if you see what I mean, when you came into it? Or was it this kind of just foreign land opening up in front of you? Um, look, I knew... I had known for, I don't know, 20, 30 <coughs> years that fragrance didn't agree with me. Long ago, my... My husband was a bit unimaginative about birthday presents and so on, so there's always a new bottle of perfume. And it took me a long time to figure out that actually uh, I was much happier, felt much healthier when I didn't wear it. But like many people with a kind of chronic thing, particularly something that was slightly shameful, as I felt this to be, I don't know whether that chimes with anyone else in the audience, but I felt slightly embarrassed, didn't want to tell anybody about this, didn't want to admit it to myself. Mm. So it was that that epiphany in the hotel room when I lay on the bed looking at the <laughs> duct tape thinking I had better not tell the publicist <laughs> that this is what I've done. <laughs> Oddly enough, when I'd written the book, the publicist said to me, you know, it's funny, Kate, I very nearly bought you a roll of tape, but I thought you would think I was crazy if, <laughs> if I did. <laughs> so um, I, I was in total denial uh, until that day. But I then decided, okay, I'm not interested in the rants, the, the, the rants that you get online about fragrance. 
I want to know the actual scientific. I want to go right back to the primary studies about this stuff. And Google makes all that possible. We can read the actual scientific studies. One of the, uh, one of the things, like you, Kate, I was amazed that there were not already lots of kind of respectable books about fragrance. Now that I, once I realised how bad for all of us it is, and particularly that so many people get immediate bad effects, why isn't there a book about it? Why aren't there conversations? So I went online and there are one or two books with, you know, skull and crossbones on the cover <laughs> called things like, you know... Certain Death. Certain Death, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I thought, I'm, a, I'm somebody who... I love information, proper, substantial, uh, even-handed information. I'm not interested in reading something persuasive. So that's what I want to write. Uh, actually, it was what I wanted to read a book that would simply lay out all that was known about this stuff that was making so many of us sick uh, without trying to convince me one way or the other. So basically that's what I wrote. I must say though, the first draft, uh, some of the passion that I felt did get into it and I, I ran it past my son. This is the very first draft, my son's about 31. Uh, and because he's my son, he could say to me, look mum, this is a terrific book that you must write. You're, you're ahead of the wave here you know, the community will soon catch up with you. But, he said, there are many parts where it is a mad hippie rant. <laughs> <laughs> and I suggest you cut those out, which I did. <laughs> so thank you, Tom. <laughs> Can we all rent your son for, you know, early <laughs> manuscript reading? Very useful. Um, Nikki, I wanted to come back to you now. Now, your mother's death was, you know, this unexpected thing in all sorts of different ways. And... It always occurs to me that, you know, maybe none of us want to give too much time or thought to dying because we don't want to feel like we're kind of courting it somehow. Did your thinking about death change when it had to accommodate those decisions that your mother had made for herself? Um, yes. Let me think how I can answer that. Um... Thinking about my own yes, death and about you know, and I guess about how, as you were saying earlier, how people are encouraged to think or not think about their own deaths in a kind of wider conversation. Suicide's a tricky one. Mm. Um, in terms of the people left reeling on the other side of it, uh, you know, my mother left no note. I, I can't imagine doing that mm. to a family. Um, there's there's still a lot of anger there in a way because um, she, my mother chose to mark her farewell to us by my um, my son's fifteenth birthday. <laughs> um, that was the last time we ever saw her, and it was a wonderfully wonderfully joyous occasion. Mm. Um, and we now know that she was planning to kill herself. She knew then, but not to tell us. She had rung Philip Nitschke's organisation several days before that. I ended up not becoming friends with Philip, but he, he was great, actually. He, I, I, I wrote a column several weeks afterwards in the reeling grief, asking my beautiful, beautiful readers, can you get me through this? Was mm. what my mother did despair or empowerment because I don't understand her mind frame here. I don't understand 
the process leading up to death that she would have been going through. Mm. And Philip tweet, he must have read that column, he tweeted that morning, Nikki, it was empowerment. And then in all the kind of code language of the exit world, he said she read um, PPH, Peaceful Pills Handbook, um, she attended forums, as in his exit forums, and she imported. And this was all news to me. Imported? What does imported mean? Philip was basically telling his very connected world that my mother had illegally imported Nembatol mm. from Mexico. I was furious. <laughs> it was like, Philip, just what are you doing? Stop this. So in my fury, I had to contact him and, you know, just question him and all the rest of it. But that began an un raveling for me of my mother's whole secret life. He sent me eight years of correspondence that mum had had about um, euthanasia. But he also sended me, it must be a legal requirement, they keep all recordings mm. of everyone who contacts them. He sent me my mother's last despairing message mm. to a, the phone message begging them for a home visit. Who knew that Exit does home visits in terms of, I presume, to guide you through that death process? I, you know, I, I don't really know why she had wanted to do that. They couldn't get to her in time. But then several days afterwards, Mum went to my son's birthday dinner. We had a wonderful night. I've gone over and over the conversations we had on that night. Mum and me had a little tiff in the car as we sometimes often did i must say the book is also a chronicle of a difficult relationship between a mother and a daughter my mother was the love of my life but she was also the hate of my life um she knew my achilles heel and she went for it viciously no one could fell me the way my mother could and i feel terrible saying this mm. that you know i'd flippantly said to girlfriends in the past you know if when my mother dies i'm going to be relieved and it's terrible to say that. When she did die, there was absolutely no relief. There was a tightening of the grip. Mm. And um, that's, that was the tragedy of us. So I feel like, okay, mum, she wanted to do this. I would have done it very differently. And in fact, my book contrasts, uh, one of my beautiful readers who read that um, early column was a GP near Sydney. And she said, Nikki, I need to talk to you because I am going through what your mother did. I've had 23 years of chronic pain. I have booked into Dignitas and in Switzerland, the euthanasia clinic. I am going to do this. And so my book also chronicles her journey in a way that was in parallel with my mother's but done in a very different way. It was through communication, mm. openness and honesty with her four adult children and those closest to her. She's just done it. Oh. She's oh. just done it. Mm. Um, and I went to the memorial last Sunday of this wonderful, intelligent, empowered woman it was a rational death. Mm. It was a death of her absolute choice. But one of her sons who spoke last Sunday, he's broken mm. in mm. the way that I'm broken. Um, and in terms of how I approach my own death, mm. what can you do but be open and be honest? And hope that you get hit by a bus and you never <laughs> have to think about it. <laughs> 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 
wishing that on exactly. all of us. <laughs> I'm not wishing that on any of us. No, but, no, no. Quick, but it quick, seems yes. to be... Unknowing. Unknowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of it, isn't it? There's the desire. It seemed to me, reading the book, that the secrecy, what felt like your mother's secrecy, what felt like her willful withholding of information must have been the hardest thing. But for her, perhaps it was a thing that she had no way of, of opening up that conversation. No. How do you say to your daughter... I've had just about enough here. Because she had also done her research via Philip Nitschke yeah. and she knew the Peaceful, Pill hand, Peaceful Pills Handbook goes into it, all the legal ramifications yeah. involving yes. your family. Yes. So she was trying out of an act of love to protect us by not telling us, but consequently she died this utterly bleak mm. and lonely death of terror. Mm. She saw no way out of the chronic pain, this bully and tormentor that had taken over her life, curled her around a walking stick like a withered old crone in a fairy tale. Um, she saw no way out but death. Mm. And that's so sad. Whereas my lovely friend Helena, I call her in the book, who went to Dignitas, she lived her last year, she took all her super out, she went travelling individually with her four different kids. One of them, they went Africa, Safari. Yep. Another one, they went to LA. And another one, they went to Norway. Another one just wanted to go to concerts at the Sydney Opera House and stay in a five-star hotel. So that's what they did. But she lived a life of absolute joy that yeah. last year, and that's in contrast. And as you mind. say, it doesn't make the, the end of it any easier for some of her children, no. but perhaps for some of her children... It did. It gives them a different uh, I think framework. The, yeah, the one difference is there would not be that sense of rejection mm. and abandonment that my family felt mm. uh, with a suicide that no explanation was given because mm. this doctor wanted to explain every step of the way and yeah. do it very, very thoughtfully. Very mindfully. Yes. Um, the two Kates, I wanted to ask each of you what the hardest things for you were to say as the writers in these pieces, hard for yourself or hard for people you knew or people that you spoke with or maybe the readers, Kate Cole Adams, can I give that one to you first of all? Yeah, yeah. I um, Look, I, I mean, I, I struggled writing this book for... Uh, you, I, I kind of... I know yours was like this rush. Mine was like this kind of compressed sort of underground... I don't know <laughs> what it was. But, um, uh, you know, really, it, it, it took me 13 years really actively writing... Um, I've completely forgotten your question. Sorry, hard Ash. <laughs> <laughs> it was that hard. Was it the hard things, hard things to say oh, or the hard things yeah. to discover or... Yeah. yeah. No, well, what I was going to say was that I actually set, set... My background's in journalism. I, I have written a novel, but I, um, I thought, OK, this is a fascinating topic. I'm a journalist. This should be quite easy. Uh, you know, maybe two or three years, a lot of research, but it'll be fine. Uh, what I found was the more I tried to write it like that the less the book would come out, the mm. more kind of angry and constrained and frustrated I got. And the, the more I, I found parts of myself and my life and my family's life started seeping in and I kept on trying to sort of push them down. Uh, it wasn't so much... I mean, there, there were very personal things. I, I, it, it, end, it has ended up being a far more personal uh, book than I, I had ever imagined. Uh, and, you know, part of that is I, I write about my, my mum who got, was diagnosed with cancer while I was writing 
and and I you know and I and I follow her journey all the way through uh, in the book partly because anesthesia is a bit like death mm. uh, but partly because there was something about the topic that triggered all of these very kind of deep murky kind of feelings for me and I started having very very bad scary dreams um, childhood kind of memories of all sorts of bits and pieces uh, came up I, I so it was a challenge to me in all sorts of ways. It was a challenge to me hearing my voice saying things that made me feel um, ugly. It was, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange terrain. Uh, I think one of the things I really started wondering during the writing, and probably before, I mean, in truth, I think I had always known it was a personal book, but I, I kept on trying to sort of hide that from myself. Uh, during the writing, there was one particular um, uh, event that I sort of kept on thinking, yeah, I wonder, but no, we're not even going to go there. Mm. And, um, and that, was ba that was basically about a, a, a surgery I had in my 30s. Uh, no, it wasn't surgery, sorry. That was, a, that was a procedure I had in my 30s, which was actually for a, a, an abortion. It was a termination of a pregnancy, which was under a light anaesthetic. And what I found was I kept on thinking, gee, I wonder if there was anything that happened during that. Uh, it was a light anaesthetic, but because of the forgetting that happens mm. with, with um, anaesthetics, uh, particularly in those lighter ones, people can be uh, taking in information, but then something happens, uh, you forget, and there's this kind of, you know, those questions about what's conscious and unconscious memory, uh, what happens uh, to, to sort of information that gets lost in, inside you. And so, uh, so this is actually the first time I've ever talked about this publicly. Um, but I, although I've kind of hidden it in the book and I kind of realised the whole book was sort of structured around hiding this thing, which although someone said to me, oh, was, did you find this, was it shameful? And I said, well, it didn't feel shameful going in, but I, I said, I think it did feel shameful coming out. Mm. Um, but so essentially I did my best not to write or talk about it uh, until I finally, and I went to a writer's centre and I was sort of writing and I decided to be my sensible self and I was writing my kind of right, this is all about the science and, you know, and, I, and I'll kind of, you know, I'll appear, you know, in various guises as a kind of, you know, sort of charming, interesting person, but I'm not <laughs> going to talk about all of this other shit. Uh, and, night, you know, day after day I toiled, it, I hated it, and then one night I went to bed and I had this dream. And this dream really completely changed the way I related to the whole, to the whole, excuse me, to the whole book. And in the dream, I'd lost my dog, and I, so I went looking, and I, I sort of knew my dog was in the pound, and I went looking for the for the dog pound, and I found the pound, and in fact my dog had disappeared. But there was a red setter, a young red setter, on the on the floor of the pound, and I could see it from, I could see its back, and I could see it was quite young, and um, as I walked in, it turned around. And I saw with this terrible shock that its its muzzle had been sewn up with um, um, mm. uh, wire mm. or um, fishing line. And in the dream, this this dog and I'm horrified. But this dog gets up and it comes and it puts its feet on the side of my shoulders, and and I can just feel it begging me, begging me for mm. life. And in the dream, I looked at it and I thought. I can't, I can't, it's too much, this is too much of a burden. But I also knew the dog's name, because suddenly in the dream, slightly intrusively, this dog's name appears, and the dog's name is Gadget, which seems to me a completely <laughs> kind of un-sort of exotic romantic name. And even in the dream, I'm thinking, Gadget, that's a weird name for a dog. 
Um, but basically, I then turn, you know, I leave the dog in that space and I turn away and I, I walk out and I wake up just suffused with sort of grief and confusion. And I lay there for a long time and what I realised, I thought, look, I don't know what that dog's trying to tell me. Maybe it was something about having, having a termination. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was something about the experience of being silenced and powerless. Maybe it was about something to do with anaesthesia. But I did know that there was no way that this book was going to happen without me actually talking about mm. it and writing about it. So that was a long answer. Mm. No, but Sorry. a beautiful one. Thank you. Yeah. And I love that you're... Um, <laughs> I love that your subconscious was helping you so actively to work out. I mean, I, I believe that most of my writing happens somewhere that's not anywhere to do with me. But I love that idea that there's all that processing going on that kind of turns up for you when you oh, yeah, when you it need it. Won't it's fantastic. shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kate Grenville, you've mentioned your attraction to science before, and we've talked about your attraction to science writing before. Was it a confronting thing for you to step into the space of that writing yourself to become the translator or the navigator of science? Yes, so interesting, Kate, to hear you talking about that journey. And isn't the unconscious amazing what kind of corny images it comes up, you know? <laughs> it wants to tell you about being voiceless. It gives you an image of something whose mouth has been sewn up. I mean, you wouldn't dare put it in a novel, would you? <laughs> Um, look, my experience was, of course, exactly the opposite because I'm somebody who is used to working, as you say, uh, out of the unconscious, always out of the unconscious and trusting it um, and, in a way, making things up, as you do in fiction. For this book, I had to resist every single speck of that because I didn't want to write a mad hippie rant. Uh, <laughs> because your son uh, wouldn't let that you write it. very important to me. Uh, because I thought this book is probably going to be attacked, so I have to make it as attack-proof as it can be. That means that I must not make up a single thing, and for a fiction writer, that is very, very <laughs> difficult. Um, I've come to welcome books being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> so, although I do love facts, uh, in my fiction, what I love about facts is the fact that they never quite join up. There's always that gap, particularly in historical research, you find these two facts that if put side to side just don't make sense together and yet you know from the historical record that they did happen. So your job is then to step into that gap and invent a scenario that is plausible and which resonates beyond the facts. Now for this book I couldn't do any of that. I couldn't even use the word, um, I, I ran this book past many uh, scientific and medical people before I published it and all of them went through crossing out the word will and replacing <laughs> it with may or can. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the word carcinogen, uh, quite a few fragrance chemicals are actually carcinogens. I had to be very careful about that word. It doesn't cause uh, cancer. It is associated with fragrance. So I learnt a great deal of that and I suddenly uh, understood how scientists have to be rigorously cautious and that of course is why science writing is the way it is. They cannot take any liberties. If the, if the rats did a certain thing on a Wednesday at mm. two o'clock, that's the only thing they can say with absolute certainty. Mm. At two o'clock on a Wednesday, this particular kind of rat did this thing. Now, I have a huge respect for that because 
from that basis of absolute veracity, we can then start to build up understanding uh, of that kind. But for me personally, that was very difficult. I always write a lot of drafts, and usually my dr fictional drafts, which I write 25 or 28 drafts quite often, uh, they're a process of embellishing and enriching. This was the opposite. It was a process of stripping away anything that I could not say, okay, here's the footnote. Footnote number 220, that's where that fact came from. It's got a beautifully... It's a beautifully elegant book, I think, because of that. It's got this gorgeous spareness. You can feel just how clear it is because it cannot make... It cannot take a step, you know, it cannot sort of make a leap in any way. And now I think that's part of what gives it so much power. And it's also just still a beautiful piece of writing as well, which is masterful to kind of have those two Thank competing you. things. I, I did also want to make it accessible, so I fed in as much of the sort of personal as I thought I could mm. kind of get away with. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nikki, I wanted to come with you uh, to sit with an image or a metaphor that you use in the book, which is the Japanese art of kintsugi. And it's this gorgeous process of something being broken, then being repaired with gold, um, so that the repaired fracture becomes a feature of the beauty of the thing rather than, than being sort of made invisible. Um, it immediately felt like one of those ideas that made a kind of profound sort of sense to how we try to get through life. Can you talk a little bit about how that image worked for you in After? Um, uh, yes. Um, I lived in London for 15 years and um, we were just talking earlier about kids and screens and how it drives us all bananas. And one of the things, I will say my older kids rather than my younger kid who had less screens in their lives, when we lived in the UK, I, I had a friend who was a ceramicist and she used to use porcelain with children and she'd make these beautiful lanterns that were stamped with shells and leaves and rocks, just the natural world. And every time I came back to Australia, once for the Byron Bay Writers Festival, I'd, you know, I'd collect all that prickly, spiky, hard, wonderful, natural stuff from the Australian bush, bring it back to the UK, and then it'd all be stamped into this porcelain, which was then fired, and you'd put tea lights in it. I, I have about 19 of them. When we left the UK with our big shipping container, I said to the wonderful, wonderful packers, these are my most treasured, treasured possessions. And God love them, they made a wooden crate for them. And they came to Australia absolutely intact. After my mother died, I had them in a line on a shelf and I had a big, long Aboriginal painting above them. And I can remember when I lived out bush in Alice Springs, you know, they used to say when a great spirit dies, there's an incredible wind that whips through, whipping everything clean. And this incredible wind came and lifted up the painting and crashed it onto the ceramic lanterns, which were like a history of my children's growing up. And I was devastated. But I came across a Japanese technique called kintsugi. It's about 500 years old, a shogun way back in the day. He had a favourite teapot that he just adored. It was smashed. He sent it off to China to be repaired and it came back with really ugly staples in it. It looked awful. So he said to his own minions, I don't know what shogun minions are called, but he <laughs> said to them, can you please devise a way of giving me back my treasured teapot? 
And the method that they devised involved resin and gold dust. And basically, it's glue with gold powder through it. You, you glue all the pieces of the bowl or the teapot or the lanterns, whatever it is, together with threads of gold through it. So it becomes something very, very different and it still maintains its purpose. It has a different strength to it, but it's imperfect. I googled Kintsugi and I found a company in Amsterdam that sends out little <laughs> Kintsugi, Kintsugi kits. kits. Yeah, for about 20 euro a kit. And I've been going back and back to them now. I repaired all those lanterns very, very wonkily. There's a picture of them in the back of the book. Um, but I thought this is very much an image in terms of my mother and I. My mother, she was born in the 30s, she came of age in the 50s, just missed the flowerings of feminism. For her, for a lot of her world and a lot of what caused all the tension and the fractiousness between the two of us was the image that she presented to the world. It had to be the image of the perfect family, the perfect house, the perfect daughter, all those kind of things. I was constantly grating up against that. I can remember, you know, when I was eight or nine, her fury as she combed my hair trying to drag out the knots in my hair because and she'd be saying, oh, I wish you were like blah, blah and blah, blah, who are still good friends of mine, the pretty popular girls in the class. <laughs> and she was just so infuriated by this nerdy little thing. When I got glasses in my teens, it was like, oh, they make you look so ugly. <laughs> it, 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 it was so much about this image of perfection. And so the Kintsugi metaphor was woven through the book, but we are all flawed. And it took me a long time to accept my mother's flaws. She never quite accepted my flaws. But it felt like a very appropriate metaphor for um, how we should live our lives. Yeah, we, are, we are more beautiful, Lord. <laughs> um, we've got about ten minutes left. I'm just going to ask one more question and then I'll make some space for your questions as well. So if you'd like to think about that now. Kate Cole-Adams, I wanted to ask you, um, when you're talking about anaesthesia and this, this sort of amazing disappearing act that it allows us to do, one of the most extraordinary things that you wrote was this stunning observation which is that to be in pain you have to know that you're in pain. Anaesthesia doesn't stop the pain, it just stops us knowing about it. And I just wanted to sit for a minute with that kind of concept of knowing. Our the fact that our experience requires awareness in a way to be real, does that link for you to a kind of need for our own curiosity in a sense that we, we need the, the knowledge of something to actually experience it? We need, we need some kind of awareness of it. I, I, I think for me... It, I, I think I, I saw it a little, a, a little bit differently, which has probably turned on its head slightly. But, uh, I mean, f for me, that whole conversation about pain, and I, I was going to write much more about pain in the book, but it was just too big and too, too complicated. But this kind of idea that really, you know, you know when, you go, when you go under surgery, basically uh, you don't feel pain because the definition of pain is uh, the sensory experience mm. at the nerves, but also it's an emotional uh, uh, sort of conscious response. So, uh, and the two work together to create this kind of whole. And so different people respond very differently to the same stimulus. 
uh, depending on what they, they bring with them. And I think, to me, the kind of parallel that I, I've kind of felt throughout, throughout the book was more about our conscious and unconscious selves mm. generally. And, uh, you know, and this kind of idea that um, just because you're not aware of something, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I think, you know, and the thing is that, uh, you know, under, under anaesthetics, al although the, there, there are painkillers, but, uh, you know, our, our bodies still keep twitching and moving mm. long after uh, we are unconscious. Our bodies are still responding to that stimulus, even though we don't um, sort of ostensibly feel, feel pain. But that, that stimulus actually does have implications in our, in our ongoing lives. And, and if that pain isn't controlled properly during the anaesthetic, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's an increased chance that it's actually going to translate into chronic pain later in, in mm. your life. There's also a chance in the operation that that pain will actually push you towards wakefulness mm. uh, and awareness. And I, so, so to me, there was that interesting parallel with kind of unconscious um, pain, I suppose, yeah. um, unconscious psychological pain as well, and the ways in which it's hidden uh, from consciousness, but the ways in which it manifests very powerfully through our lives. And I, you know, one of the things about unconscious processes is basically while information, while something's unconscious, we can't really do anything with it. It's just there. It's not until it comes into consciousness that we get to contextualise it. Yeah. And so it becomes repetitive and uh, it keeps kind of saying the same thing over and over again uh, in a very unsophisticated mm. way, really. Uh, does that answer yeah. the question? Yeah, I think, Sally? yes, the whole space between the conscious and the subconscious, we need another two hours to talk about, which... I'm sorry, we can't get there now. Um, we have come to the end of the time for our conversation, but we've got time for some questions. Can I ask you all um, to please make your questions short and quite questiony, if you could. <laughs> um, if you would like to have longer conversations with the writers, you'll be able to find them in the signing tent after this. But if there are a couple of short questions, there's a lady in the middle here. There's a lady on that side. I can see those twos. Hello, I've got a question for Kate Grenville. Um, I have a problem with, um, with scents as well, with perfumes. And um, just yesterday I was, I was in a cafe having a coffee and some lunch and a woman got out her um, natural oils or whatever it was and put it on and it, it actually, I was with a friend, it ruined our lunch for both mm. of us. Mm. My question is, is there, a, is there a polite way? Did you explore <laughs> anything like that? Is, is there a polite way to What's say... What's the etiquette this? For is this is really giving me a problem. Well, look, once I did leave uh, in a similar situation, I left a little card on, on the desk of the person who had... on the table of the person who had forced me out of the cafe. Um, and I saw her read it and, and look stricken, and I thought, this is not the right way to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One of, I th it is the most unsayable, impossible conversation to have, to say to somebody, the way you smell is making me sick. <laughs> Very difficult conversation. So one of the one of the many functions of my book, I hope, might be that you can just casually leave it lying around. <laughs> so the trick is to to only leave your house with twenty copies of Kate's book <laughs> and just park them wherever you find the need. There was a lady. I've lost her now. Yes, there's a lady just in the middle here. 
And then there was one more lady over here. Hi, uh, this is a question for Nikki. Nikki, thanks very much for your openness today. That's been fabulous. Um, I'm interested in how you wrote this book to work through the grief and understand your mother. And so my question is, to what extent has writing the book helped work through the grief? Um, for me, and I, I guess for anyone who's gone through grief, you, you become someone else. Mm. You, you don't feel like yourself. I felt like I was a danger to myself and to others. I, I, I felt at times I couldn't drive my car. I, I was snapping at people in the supermarket queue, God help me with road rage, all the rest of it. I, I had be turned into someone else. And for me, uh, and my beautiful husband and my family, I just turned into this awful, awful harridan. Of, I, I just was so unbalanced in so many ways. But for me, the only thing that was my anchor was writing, writing to get through it, writing to understand, to remove myself from the world. You know, the Jewish faith, they they have this decree that, um, and it's only with the death of a parent, it's not with the death of anyone else, that you remove yourself for a year of your life after the death of your parent because no one else has shaped you like they have. It is such... A, a seminal tie and I really felt for a year eight, I still don't feel quite normal but my husband would say that's normal I've never been normal <laughs> but, um, um, but for a year or so I just needed to re retreat from the world and writing was my rock to get through it because it was an investigative journey as well perhaps but I've also I think for all of us with kids and everything mm. it Mate, it stops the shouting mm. in, for me in terms of I get calmer, I am a better mother if I'm allowed to write and if I can glean, cleave the way out of my life to work. So that's why I did it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There was a lady in the middle here as well. I think this might be our last question as well because I know there's a lot of people pressing in for the next event. Um, my question's for Kate Cole-Adams, so that's good. That's, thank you for that democracy. <laughs> um, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. But, and I just wanted to ask you a question about whether you looked at childbirth and how um, the stream of consciousness when you're in that pain, because I know from myself and probably a lot of other women that you, there's some kind of amnesia happening, so I'm just wondering <laughs> about that. If you have two, there definitely was. <laughs> Look, it's a really good question and it, it, there were so many uh, places that this book sort of started going and in the end I just realised I can't, there, 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 there's way too much. But I, d but I do look at um, hypnosis and hypnosis in, in pain control and that's absolutely fascinating and, and sort of, you know, and, and the fact that people can actually go through surgery entirely uh, with, with hypnosis um, and, and also the fact that actually with the sort of hypnotic suggestion before surgery, people actually... Uh, come through with much better, and there's been studies that you come through with much better results, less nausea, less pain. In one case, you know, they saved the hospital seven, more than $700 per patient on in time and pain medication. Um, so I think those sort of conversations about ways of uh, dealing with pain that are, are, are non-medical um, uh, or not entirely medical is a fantastic conversation and one of those ones that I would hope that this would, all, this would open up. Thank you. Um, and thank you all for your thoughts and for your interest this morning. It's been an incredible privilege to sit with these three women and their 
books. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Writers Festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.